All right. Good morning, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 77 and 78, that's where we'll be this morning. And 78 is really long, so we're going to get at this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts, not just to our brains, although we want to understand it with our new minds that you've given us. We want it to move into our hearts so that it's applicable. We know how to uh, hear it and do it. And so, um, as they go over the history of your people, Israel, we can't help but see the spiritual comparison to our own lives. And so, we pray that you'd help us to see things clearly, to be encouraged, and to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. This begins the historic Psalms. Psalm 77 is one that begins to speak of the things God's done in the past. And those are important things to remember. Things that God has done. They used to have uh, remembrance stones. Um, you'll see it scattered throughout Scripture where they'll walk through the Jordan and take some stones from the center of the river and pile them up, you know, and uh, say this is the time that God held back the Jordan for us, and so on. Many other moments like that. Altars built, scattered where God did this, that, or the other thing. Those are called remembrance stones. And we need to have those in our lives. We don't want to dwell on those things. We don't want to sit on those rocks. But it is nice to remember those stones, to have those moments with God where um, we remember where he stepped into our lives and did great things, because it isn't every day. I mean, he's always with us, and he's always leading us and guiding us, and there can be opportunities every day for us to minister and be ministered to. But the big stuff, you know, the moments that we remember and... uh, where it's undeniable, there was no coincidence involved that God stepped in and did something. Those are remembrance things that we need to write down and keep. Some people journal, some people just have them in their memory, and God will bring them to you when it's appropriate, when you need them. That's what these Psalms are. He goes over the things going on with the nation of Israel and tries to uh, remind them of what God has done for them in the past and how he's taken care of them. And that helps them through the difficult times. The times where they're not so sure he's present or near. In verse 1 of 77, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remember God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Now, we're going to see why that is, and I believe it's really focused on verse 10 that explains that. It's been said that um, the trench of sorrow, if it's dug deep enough, brings that much more joy into your life. In in other words, you know, a, a diamond set on a black background really shines, and that's the idea. We have some rough things going on in our lives, and and uh, when something good happens, boy, we notice it even more because the comparison's so stark. Uh, such a good contrast. Well, it goes the other way too, though. He's crying out in the middle of the night. He's thinking about all the difficulties that the nation of Israel has gone through and is going through. And as he's crying out to God, he's remembering all the things God's done in the past. Now, for the believer, when we come to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we really surrender over to him, And he changes us from the inside out and gives us a new heart and a new mind. And we're feeling that grace and that mercy, that forgiveness. Those are some of the greatest moments of our lives. I mean, talk about a remembrance stone. 
Every one of us can remember the first time we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. We actually gave it over to Him, that moment. You know, that's a great day. If you haven't had that day, I pray that today's the day for you. But that's a great time because you remember that. Now, as you grow older, the Lord, and as you walk with the Lord, sometimes our feelings and emotions fade day to day. Maybe they get stronger one day and weaker the next. He's in a really low spot right now. And he's thinking about how God's not with him right now. And the nation of Israel seems to have been forsaken by the Lord. As he thinks about that, he thinks about how close we had been or they had been to him. And so that that trench of joy, exact opposite, has also brought in that much sorrow. See, when I feel distant from God now, I've been walking with him for decades. When I feel distant from God now, boy, I notice. I mean, it isn't just, uh, gosh, I wonder what's going on. I know exactly what's going on. And I know exactly what I'm missing. I know exactly. It's as if, uh, some of you can identify with this, if you're married and your spouse leaves for an extended amount of time, you notice, maybe not the first day so much, that night you do, and then the next morning, and you're wondering, and it's harder and harder to function. I'm, I'm a wreck when Jenny's gone. If she's gone for, she's rarely gone, but when she does go, to go visit a parent or something like that, or something takes her away for whatever reason. I, I turn into this worthless bachelor who eats Doritos. And I mean, she, there's food. It's not like she hasn't prepared. I mean, she, she didn't need to. I could certainly cook for myself. I'm not an invalid. But she'll just take care of me and put everything away, and it's all right there for me and all the groceries I could ever want. Everything. But, but what do I choose? The food of depression, you know? It's because I miss her and I love her. I'm not complete without her. I've gone on trips without her. I've talked about this before. You can identify that. You look over a canyon or some sort of beautiful landscape and you're like, uh, by yourself. It's worthless without the one you love. It just is. It just doesn't mean anything. Take a picture, send it to her, see if she can somehow appreciate it through an iPhone. You know, That's the only way I'm going to appreciate it, if she sees it. When we walk with God for any amount of time, and you feel him gone, it's just like that, if not 10 times worse. Just like that. And I think that's what the writer's getting at. Boy, I remember the good times with you, God. Now, oftentimes, these guys, when they write these things, forget how they got to where they are. It's not like God up and decided, say, I'm going on a trip. I'm leaving you alone for a couple weeks. I hope you do okay. He never leaves us or forsakes us unless we walk away. And that's always been the case for Israel. And for us, he's never not present. He's never not desiring to have fellowship with us. It's us that leaves that relationship. And so we can sit there and moan and groan all day long. God, where are you? I can't feel you. I don't know where you've been. I haven't seen you in the last month or two. And God's response, if I don't mean, I do. I'm going to speak on his behalf. Where have you been? I don't move. I'm everywhere all the time. I'm in you. Your lack of fellowship with me is not on my part, God would say. And so he's remembering all that. I'm remembering these things. I'm complaining in my spirit and I'm overwhelmed. On the bright side or the dark side, I don't know how else to put this, but you're not alone when you have those moments. When you feel um, helpless, hopeless. This writer, I mean, he's a psalmist. He walks with God every single day and He's going through this time. You're not alone. It's not sin. I mean, 
it can be. It could be because of sin. There's lots of reasons we can go through those moments of depression or difficulty. But you're not alone, is the point. And that sometimes that helps. And there's a way back. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. So he's admitting that he's there, right? Hard to hold someone's eyelids open if you're not there to do it. You're the one that keeps me awake at night. I'm not, I'm not having sound sleep all night long. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. So I'm remembering. I'm going through my mind all those close times. And I think that's just our breadcrumbs, trying to find our way back to him. You know? How, how was I so close then and I'm not now? It, it is, a, a, I think, a genuine lapse of, of, of thought, memory. I, I, know, I know I'm in a dark place. I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And I know it's probably my fault. I just don't know how I got here and I don't know how to get back. I think that's genuine for all of us, spiritually. And I think what he's doing here is he's going over in his mind, okay, now when I was close to God, I was doing this and that. And you want to recreate you know, get back to that place. Verse 7, will the Lord cast off forever? These are his six questions for God. I mean, are you done with us forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is he not going to bless us? Not just keep us from trouble, but will he bless us? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Of course, the answer to all those questions is no. And I don't know that he's not giving rhetorical questions here, but he probably knows the answer to all these things, almost talking himself out of his depression. Has God forgotten us? Of course he hasn't. Has God's mercy failed? Of course it doesn't. It never does. You know, who knows? Those are good questions for us. It helps us to get grounded, I think, again. You can spiral out of control in that darkness, you know, and, and it kind of builds on itself and it gets worse and worse like a, like a spinning tide pool towards the center. You go faster and faster and faster. And I think these questions that we can ask ourselves is, is okay, let's, let's start with square one. Is God an evil, creepy God? Of course not. Let's well, slows down the spin a little bit. Does he hate me? Well, no. I mean, of course not. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. And all of a sudden, these things you know intuitively and from Scripture begin to come up in your mind, and it slows down that spin. It begins to bring you back up. Here's the key, I think. And I said, here's his answer, this is my anguish, the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now, I purposely left out the italicized words there because those are added for clarity. Anytime you see italicized words in your scriptures, in the Bible, those are added by the writers, or the, not the writers even, the, 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 the folks interpreting, to add clarity. As we switch languages, this adds clarity to it. Okay, so they add these italicized words. Well, I really think it changes the focus. Let's read it with the italicized words. And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. That would indicate that my anguish are those six questions I just asked, seven, eight, and nine. And my antidote to those six questions is, I will remember the years, you know, of the right hand of the Most High God. That's going to bring me out of this, which is, could be true. But now read it without it again. 
And I said, this is my anguish, the years of the right hand of the Most High. Which is kind of how I started this. The joy we had, the closeness we had, that's my anguish. That's what makes this dark time seem so dark is because of the light that I've experienced. The most miserable person in the world is the Christian in a backslidden state. The unbeliever could care less. They don't even know what it's like to walk with God. You know? It's the Christian who's been walking with God and is now not walking with God. And they are the worst. They can't enjoy sin. They can't enjoy fellowship with God. They're afraid to go read their Bible. They're afraid to pray. They're afraid to talk to him. They don't want him, they don't want him to see them where they are. They're miserable in both places. The unbeliever is just wallowing around in the mud because they don't know any better. So I think the italicized words being removed gives us the proper focus. This is my anguish. The years of the right hand of the Most High when he was with me. When he was walking, when I felt that presence in his life or his presence in my life. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. There's no one better. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. I'm going to go over these things in my mind. I'm going to remember these things. It helps. No matter what happens or where I am, how dark it is. And I say that because I've experienced that. I did that this week. In my life, I didn't know how close I necessarily felt to God one day. I was stressed. I was, things weren't going like I like, they weren't smooth like I like things to go. I don't think, I don't like it when things don't go smooth. I hate that. I hate it when there's more problems. You can't put anything in the rear view mirror. Every time you try to get rid of something, it's like a boomerang and it falls back in front of you again. You're like, I thought I dealt with this already. I thought I made that call. I thought I sent that paper. I thought we signed this three or four times now. Why do you keep sending this to me? I had this, you want to know, I'm sure. I had this person I was working with on the other side of a deal. And they have an assistant that doesn't know what they're doing. So they kept sending me the documents over and over. And she was getting more and more antagonistic. You need to have your clients sign these. And all I could do was send them screenshots. It's signed. You keep sending me the wrong version. You need to update your side of things. Oh, yeah, Jesus, I'm a Christian. I love you, God. You know, <laughs> uh. And so it's at the end of the day, you come home from work, everything's in the rearview mirror, so you thought, but you can feel your attitude towards your kids, and you're a little short with everybody. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to, you know what, and I just started praising the Lord and thanking Him for what He's done. And I thank you for my job, and I thank you how you're providing, and I thank you for this, that. And I just kept going over and over these things. I've been here this week with this. He's wonderful. And my, and my tough time wasn't near what he's going through, you know, minor, minor compared. I think that's important for us to remember those things and to go over things. And if it doesn't matter how my day is going, I'm going to declare God's goodness is the idea. I'm going to declare God's goodness because he is good. Verse 16, the waters, you, the waters saw you, O God. Now he's going to go into some Big stuff. The waters you saw you, O God, and the waters saw you, and they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. 
The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters. Your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Of course, he's talking about the Red Sea and the Jordan probably also, but probably more than likely the Red Sea here. They, those are good stories to go over. I, I, I haven't counted yet, but that might be a good thing for you to do. How many times does the nation of Israel remember the Red Sea? Or by a prophet, by anybody, David, any of the psalmists, anybody in the New Testament, bring that up, that same story. You know, It's like, I got it. He parted the Red Sea. It was a really, really big deal. Some of the most powerful miracles ever done in the Bible. Amazing, amazing. Witnessed by so many, I think is the key. A lot of things were done in homes or with this group of people or that. This is a big deal. Millions of people crossed on dry land through the Red Sea. And afterwards, this same sea drowned out the entire most powerful military in the world. This is a very public event. Now, why does it matter? Because it was such a powerful act. Why am I concerned with a document that has to be signed 12 times in a row? You know? Why is the writer here going over this in his mind? Because my problems are far smaller than that big one we went through in the Red Sea. God demonstrated his power on purpose so that we know I can handle all this stuff. Let me know if you find something more difficult or harder to handle than the Red Sea and, the, and, a, and an entire army after you. And maybe I'll do something even bigger than the Red Sea, but for now that ought to suffice you know, for me and my problems. And so he brings that up to himself to remind him of these things. God, you're good. Those are good times. Psalm 78. This is a rebellious Israel. Oh boy, we get tired of hearing this. We just do. Give ear, O my people. In other words, listen, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, mysterious sayings, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Now, We all have to experience God for ourselves. God has no grandchildren in heaven. You have to be a child of God. You don't get, you know, brought in because your mom and dad were saved. That's something we all have to do personally. The problem with telling stories about what God has done in my life to my kids is it's secondhand. It's not experienced, right? My problem with that again, then, on top of that problem, is that I don't want you to experience why I experienced the hand of God. In other words, we were so rebellious that we wouldn't leave Egypt when it was appropriate for us to leave. We stayed there. We got custom to the world, and then we became enslaved by it, and we had to cry out for a deliverer to get us out of it. And that's why we have these wonderful stories about the Red Sea, because of us. You see, God got me out of some serious problems. Now, I love to tell my kids about my stuff in my past. You know, I've got a lot of stuff in my past before I got saved. And, and, and for me, in my mind, I'm thinking I'm showing them the blackness with the diamond on top. You know, look what God has done in my black life, you know. But I don't know that anybody in the room's hearing that. They're all excited about the black. They're like, really? That happened? What else did you do, Dad? You know? 
Like, no, you're missing the point. I mean, it is funny. It's ridiculous. But I'm telling them these stories like the psalmist is saying, we're going to tell these stories so that you don't have the black past. I don't want you to go through that. I don't, I don't want Jesus to look that bright in your life. I know that came out wrong, but that's kind of what I mean. I don't want you to have such a horrible past. We tried to save you from that. We tried to bring you up so that you didn't have these horrible experiences that God had to come in and do Red Sea stuff. And so he's telling them, we could, our parents told us all about it. Now, we didn't go through the Red Sea, but they did. And I'm not going to forget to tell the next generation, my kids, about what my dad said. So now we're three generations or two generations removed from when God did this. Unfortunately, that just fades. And people get complacent. And that is the history of Israel. They walk with God. Then they get complacent. They get rebellious. They begin to do things on their own. They find themselves in deep trouble. They cry out to God. He gets them out of the trouble. And we go through that cycle over and over and over again. It's a hard thing. Please just learn from my mistakes. But most often than not, they don't learn from our mistakes. We don't have a Red Sea, our kids might ask. Oh, you don't want a Red Sea in your life. Just remember my Red Sea or the Red Sea of Grandma and Grandpa. You don't want that moment in your life. Now I say that. We're all sinners. We all need to have that moment of being born again with Jesus Christ. I don't mean that. I just don't think you need to get yourself into such a dark place that you have a horrible memory, basically. Verse 5, for he established a testimony in Jacob. God wants to establish a testimony in us, by the way. He took that Jacob, made him into a nation and brought them out. He established a testimony. The whole world saw what it was like when God chose a people and when a people began to worship God. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. The law is this, and here's what it's for. It's a law for generations to follow that they might have a pure understanding of who God is and what he says. It's not secondhand. It's not opinionated. It's his law. This is who I am. So he writes down the law for Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart right, aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. That's why we do these things. I established a relationship with Jacob, and Jacob did this, that, and the other thing, and then we wrote the laws, and the laws get passed on to the kids. We don't have that conversation again on top of the mountain with the Ten Commandments and all. No, that was once. We did that already. And now just read those Ten Commandments and live your life accordingly. That's what our God expects. And he wrote them on stone so that we could all read them and they wouldn't be changed or adjusted. To just walk in obedience, not like Grandma and Grandpa did or further back. They were not faithful. We raise up our kids to know the Lord, or at least about Him, to experience Him, to see Him in our lives. That's our goal. That's what we want. And if you're not a parent yet, that's what you want to do. You want to raise Him to see forgiveness, mercy, grace. You want Him to know the Word of God. 
We want it embedded in their hearts because they're going to need it someday. You want to do that for them. And you want to teach them, don't be unfaithful to God like I was unfaithful. And you want to talk about those moments with them. They need to see the failings and the successes and the beautiful remembrance stones of when God relieved us of our own, of our own problems, of ourselves. And that's all the writer's saying here. Verse 9, the children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. This is part of their unfaithfulness that he mentioned in verse 8. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. They forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. There it is again, the Red Sea. And he made the water stand up like a heap. That's Jordan. In the daytime also, he led them with a cloud, and at night with the light of fire. It's amazing in and of itself. I mean, there was no deliverance necessarily, just guidance. Not only do I protect you from your enemy, I also lead you and guide you if you just walk after the signs that I'm showing you. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in, the abund- in abundance, like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused the waters to run down like rivers. Wonderful things that God had did for them, done for them, continues to do for them. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. God had been providing for them since they left Egypt in abundance. It just wasn't their flavor. That's the problem. And so they tested him even more. They rebelled against him. They sinned even more. And this is what they said to him. They said this to God. In the middle of being delivered, in the middle of being cared for and provided for. They spoke against him and said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he, can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God. They did not trust in his salvation. He gets mad at that. You know who I am. You know what I've done for you, what I'm doing for you. And you're still complaining about the way I'm doing it or with what I'm doing it with. It's not the right kind of bread. It's not the right kind of water. It's not the right kind of meat. They didn't believe. They didn't trust. I believe it's a day-to-day thing. Is he going to do it again? Is it going to continue to come? Will the sun get up tomorrow? You know, Is it going to rise? Will the sun set? I don't know. I doubt. He's upset with them because they don't believe in him. They don't trust him. And here's why. And I think it's a very fair of God. What have I done for you not to trust me? What have I done for you not to believe in me? What more do I have to do to make this relationship stronger and your walk with me consistent? What causes you to walk away so quickly after whatever shines or glitters or distracts? Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat, and given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He set them food to the full, 
It's interesting, isn't it? Angel food. That's what manna is. I didn't provide you bread like whole wheat grains, you know, and multi-grain loaves didn't drop out of the sky. I gave you something that no man's ever eaten before or will ever eat again. I'm giving you the food that angels eat. Angels' food is going to drop down from heaven upon you to eat. And it wasn't special enough for them. It wasn't enough. Oh, we like the leeks and onions. It's kind of bland. We do the same thing, though, where we can. God provides for us and takes care of us. And we look back and we say, I've, I've not gone hungry. I've not, I'm warm. You know, so many things he's done. Yeah, but I mean, it's only a two car. I want a three car. I've, I got to have room for my garage, for my mower, or, you know, whatever it is. It's not big enough. It's not enough. You haven't provided enough. Oh, no. Just be thankful. So even when he's mad, then he opened it up and dropped down this angel food on them. He caused the east wind to blow in the, in the heavens. And by this power, he brought in the south wind and also rained meat on them. That was the quail. Like the dust, feathered fowl, like the sand of the sea. And he let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. I mean, they didn't even have to go hunt for it. You know, They flew in and dropped by their tents and flopped around and they grabbed them and ate them. I mean, you couldn't ask for better... You know, Grubhub than that. We don't have Grubhub. What do you call that food? DoorDash. DoorDash. Right there. Amazing. So they ate, finally, some meat and were filled. For he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving. That's all it was. But while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choicest or the choice of Israel. Now, why would he do that? Well, there's speculation here. I don't know. You know, why give him quail? It says, I'm going to give you meat till it comes out of your nostrils. He said, I mean, I'm going to give you that much meat. You want meat? I'm going to give you meat. Here's the meat, you know. This sounds like a kind of a bitter gift. Not meant to be a blessing necessarily, but I don't know. Never once do you hear him say, thank you, I can't believe that we were so selfish as to not appreciate the angel food and ask for meat. I'm so embarrassed that these things are flopping outside my door. Thank you for providing them, but no thanks. I'll go back to the angel food, which is what should have happened. But we don't hear any of that. All we hear them out is just, I mean, devouring it like madmen and women. Just, yeah, you know, like, just like beasts. And I think when God saw that, in my opinion, it says while the meat was still between their teeth, he was angry. Verse 32, in spite of this, even this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. 33, I think, is the pivot point. This is the circled verse in my Bible anyway. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. I see a lot of people with that, unfortunately. I think we all have people like that in our lives. You can see the disbelief. You can see the, the disregard for your faith, for your walk with Jesus. You can see that. And you try to tell them about the glories of God, what he's done for you and how beautiful he is. And you can see them look at you and just kind of smirk, smile and shrug. And you look at their lives broken, destroyed, or in the process of being destroyed because of their own doing. 
because of their own choices and willingness to not obey God. And you can see this verse 33 almost coming to fruition in their lives right in front of your face. Because of all this, because God never did enough for them, what he provided wasn't quality as far as they're concerned. They don't remember the things that he had done for them, the deliverance in their lives. They don't know what it's like to feel that love or at least to respond to it appropriately and give the, the love back, the respect back. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. They spend the rest of their lives walking around in this desert in the wilderness, still getting taken care of, shoes never running out, you know, never wearing out, still getting the water. They never starved. They always had food, but they didn't get to go to where God wanted to take them was the promised land where everybody had their own vine, a land of milk and honey, a beautiful place of peace and obedience to God. But because they wouldn't, they spend the rest of their lives in the desert walking around receiving his provision still, his watchful eye, but nothing like they should have. And their days were consumed. They spent their whole life. What a wasted life it is without Jesus Christ in obedience to him. What a waste to think there's anything better out there than to walk as closely with Jesus as possible and to live your life that way. It's such a waste. Their lives are consumed with futility. It's futile. I get, what's, I, I get what Solomon wrote. You know, vanity. It's just all vanity. This, that, oh, I think this is great. This is what I mean. I'm going to be known for this thing, whatever this is. And make my life and my, my, my life will shine on this thing. And it's not Christ. A futile. No one's going to remember you. No one's going to remember it. You're one of a billion, you know, it's futile. When they could have had the closest relationship with God ever just by obedience, just by doing what he told them to do each and every day. But instead they decided to spend their life in futility and it just consumed. They lived years in fear, never peace. going around that mountain over and over and over again, never figuring out it's your path you've chosen. How come this keeps happening to me? Because you're still doing the same thing. Change course. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never made him your Lord and Savior, and I mean Lord, not just Savior, I want him to save you from your sins. He has. He died on the cross for our sins. But make him Lord this morning, or remake him Lord if you've lost that. And walk with him and let him choose the path for you. And then walk in it in obedience, whatever that path is, even if it's not the one you thought it was going to be. And be content with it. Be content with the woman that he's brought into your life. Be content with the man that he's brought into your life. Be content with what God has brought into your life. The amount of money that he's brought in, be content with that. But look at what he hasn't brought in. Look at what he has. You won't have fear. You're not going to be consumed with futility. You're going to have a sweet relationship with God because we ought to practice up. That's where we're going to be forever. Why we want to spend less time with him now as opposed to eternity is beyond me. Verse 34. When he slew them, that's what it took. When they began to die, 
in the wilderness, dropping off like flies, waiting until finally only Joshua and Caleb were left. Those are the only two of the original millions that get to go into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue and their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. Very fragile people we are, is what God remembers us as. There were times when they made with their mouth the confession of faith, the belief in God, but it didn't last long. It wasn't enough for repentance or a changed life. It was just a momentary uh, hitch. Hitched their ride, you know, with God. But they immediately jumped off. I was in San Francisco, and that's a, it's a myth. They don't let you jump on the trolley cars. We tried that. You, you don't get to just jump on and drag yourself up the hill. It's kind of a liability issue, I guess. So we thought we'd look like the Rice-A-Roni commercial and and maybe hop on there one of these days. And no, you got to buy a ticket and you got to do it right, you know. But I think of that dumb rice aroni commercial, which I can't get out of my head, that the marketing department did a very good job in that commercial. Rice aroni, it's a San Francisco tree. Isn't that amazing? I haven't seen that since the price of right when I was sick as a kid. And that's what God brought to my mind. Well, God didn't probably. People hop on and off the trolley car of Jesus Christ throughout their entire lives, and I watch it happen. Hit your ride when they need it. They jump off when they see something shiny or a shop they want to go into or something. Then they hop back on. They they don't ride with him. They don't let him drive. They don't let him be Lord. God wants to be Lord. He wants to be permanent. He wants to be married. He wants to experience everything with you. He wants you to experience everything with him. He doesn't want dating. Not interested in that. It's not a casual relationship that he wants. He wants all of you. Because he gives all of him. Hmm. Verse 40, I think. Is that where I am? How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. They forgot about that. Now he goes through the ten ten plagues of, of, of Egypt again. The day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, turned their rivers to blood and their streams that they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar, their labors to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. 
He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague, or over to, yeah, and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the firstborn of their strength and in their tents of Ham. We see that the Egyptians are the descendants of Ham. He came at them hard. The nation of Israel had forgotten his power. They had forgotten what he had done. When you see a God like this do these things to unbelievers, to show his strength, and to think somehow that this isn't going to come upon you as an unbeliever to get your attention, um, it's just a, it's a disconnect, I think, for people. Certainly not me. Read things in the Bible over and over again that tell you, don't do this or do do this. And somehow we read that and say, well, that's for somebody else. It's not for me. No, it's all for us. You know? No, you don't need to get a copy of today's message and make sure Aunt Joni sees it. You know, she really needs this message. My grandson or my cousin or I wish my wife was here or my husband was here. They're not. They're not listening. It's all for us. The word of God, every bit of it, every word of it is for me. But he made his own people go forth like sheep. In the middle of all that chaos that he brought to Egypt, he led them out like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on, on safely so that they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents, which is meant to be a peaceful place for them to rest the rest of their lives, you know, gave them a place to live. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. What that means is like a bow, bows, when you pull them, they need to pull straight, you know. Top and bottom need to meet. When you pull that string, they better come together and not kind of twist when you do it, you know. Or your arrow is going to go wonky. They're like a deceitful bow. Can't trust it. For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. So they forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among them or among men, and delivered his strength into captivity. And his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over, uh, over to the sword. He was furious with his, with his inheritance. 62 is, is, is it's mentioned a couple times in Scripture, but that's how he sees us. He considers us his inheritance. We always think of our inheritance when it comes to God. It's hard not to. We're kind of selfish that way, you know. But that's how much we mean to him. I wonder if that's part of our problem. We don't know how much we mean to him. We know that he loves us. He tells us that all the time. But do we truly understand that? Because knowing how much he loves us and that he considers us his inheritance, maybe that would cause us to wander less. Stay closer a little bit. It's a a big deal to him when I sin. It's it's hurtful. it's, It's heartbreaking. Jesus cried when he saw Jerusalem not accepting their Messiah. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, how I long to gather you, you know. It's hurtful. 
And maybe that helps if we can see his face as we're about to go sin to realize, I'm not going to do this to him. I don't care how much my flesh wants this. I'm not going to do this to him. He loves me too much. I don't want to hurt him anymore. I'm done with it. I'm going to put it, I'm going to truly repent of this. I'm not going back to this garbage. I'm not going to leave him or forsake him because he never leaves me or forsakes me. He's always looking at me. He's always got love in his eyes for me. Why do you love us? What love is this? He also gave his people over to the sword, was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. I circled that. I don't know why. But it's meant to be amazing that these men all died and their wives that were left behind made no lamentation. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say they were jumping and leaping and saying good riddance, but there wasn't a whole lot of sorrow that their husbands had gotten killed as priests. They made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke from his sleep like a mighty man who shouts because of wine. And he beat back his enemies and put them in perpetual reproach. It's like, okay, I'm done dealing with my people. Now my enemies need to be put away. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he uh, has established forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes. That's what the shepherd does. He follows behind the flock there, leads them or follows them. And had young, that had young, the ewes that had young, he brought him. He used David to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel's inheritance. He took this little shepherd boy and turned him into a shepherd of people. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. And we can see there the the history that the psalmist goes through. It's not an exciting history to read, but it's honest, isn't it? The Bible's certainly honest about the people that were supposed to be his and weren't, or that weren't consistent. I want God to be honest with us too. I think I'm encouraged that I read these psalms and I can identify and probably write my own about my own life, you know. And how God has always got his eyes on me and always encouraging me. I'm always remembering the things he's done or he's bringing them to my remembrance, I'm pretty sure. I haven't forsaken you, don't you remember this? You know, And it keeps me in that close place with him. The longer you walk with Jesus, the closer you are to him, the more difficult it is to enjoy anything other than that. And if you haven't experienced that, and this isn't necessarily the altar call, you know. But even as a believer, if you haven't experienced the difference between walking with Jesus and without, and you can't tell, I could take it or leave it. I mean, I do it because I'm supposed to. I mean, that's what the Bible tells me. But as far as me walking with God or not walking with God, I really don't see a distinction in my life. I hope this spurs you on to get closer because what he's writing about is normal. You're missing something then in your walk. 
to walk into sin or to walk with sin or to walk with the world and not see a distinction or a difference, you're missing something. You need it. Lord, we thank you for this morning. There's such a stark contrast between walking with you and without, and it's the difference is being born again. The difference is having a new heart and a new mind. Lord, if we have a religion with you, then we don't have that new heart and new mind. We're just going through the motions. We're going through the rituals and thinking that that is salvation. That is worship, and it's not. God, I pray for every person here this morning that if they're not born again, they would be today. That they cry out to you, God, I want everything you have for me. I want to be born again. I know what the Bible says about my forgiveness and that you died on the cross for my sins, and I receive that today. I love the salvation. I love the gospel, the good news that you died, but I also want you to be Lord. I want to walk away from my sin. I want to repent of it. I don't want to turn to it. I don't want to be comfortable in it. I want to leave it behind me, and I want to walk with you as closely as possible, regardless of what that looks like to the people closest to me. I don't care about my pride. I don't care about the appearances. I choose you today. I choose your path for my life. I will not vary. Whether everybody comes with me or nobody comes with me, I will walk with you from this day forward. Please give me that new heart and that new mind that I can understand your heart and your mind, that I can read your word and comprehend it and apply it. That's what I want. I'm all yours. I thank you for loving me, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go this morning, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. If you need a Bible, grab one. Um, Jenny will be over here ready to pray with anybody, any ladies that need to. And of course, Toby and I will be up here ready to pray also.